From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I'm sure that the God of justice would judge justly. And for my colleagues who have rejected Christianity because of what Christianity has done for centuries, I cannot blame them at all. I do not hold them accountable. I hold Christians accountable, specifically the colonizing Christians. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome back to the show Miguel A. De La Torre. He's Professor of Social Ethics and Latinx Studies at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver. He's published over 41 books, including Burying White Privilege, Resurrecting a Badass Christianity, and Decolonizing Christianity, Becoming Badass Believers. His commentary has appeared in prominent media outlets, including CNN, Telemundo, NPR, Time Magazine, and many others, both domestic and international. Today we're talking about his recent book, Resisting Apartheid America, Living the Badass Gospel. Professor Miguel De La Torre, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me again. So I want to start out our conversation with what I call setting the table, where we get some terms in place so that listeners can understand where we're coming from. And I think in order to really get at the heart of resisting apartheid America, we might want to start with this idea of Euro-Christianity and distinguish it from what I think my listeners might think of as just plain Christianity. Could you help us to navigate that? Absolutely. And that's probably a good place to begin. When I use the term Euro-Christianity, obviously the term itself refers to European. It refers to a Eurocentric way of doing Christianity. Now, this European way of doing Christianity has absolutely nothing to do with doctrines or with beliefs or with tenets of the faith. Your Christianity is an ideology that maintains and sustains white supremacy. It goes hand in hand with what we may call Christian nationalism. The other term that maybe we should also look at while we're talking about this is the word white, which I use throughout the book. By white, I am not talking about skin pigmentation. White is also used as someone who embraces white supremacy. Now, I make this distinction because, number one, you could have people of color, Blacks, Latina, Asians, who are white, even though the skin pigmentation or ethnicity is different because they embrace white supremacy. And they are also Euro-Christians, even though they're not from Europe, because they embrace this form of ideology with the veneer of Christianity. 
not just people of color, but you could have Jews who are Euro-Christians, Muslims who are Euro-Christians, atheists and humanists who are Euro-Christians. Again, nothing to do with religion, nothing to do with ethnicity, nothing to do with race. It has to do with the embracing of an ideology. Now, let me make sure that I'm hearing this correctly. So when you say that Euro-Christianity has nothing to do with doctrines, it's an ideology. And when you talk about whiteness not having to do with skin pigmentation, but rather having to do with supporting structures of white supremacy, is the sort of through line that connects all of this the people who benefit? Like if we were to look and analyze this and say, okay, we're really not talking about religion and we're really not talking about ethnicity. We're talking about a structure of benefits and oppressions. And certain people are benefiting and certain people are being oppressed. And if you're in favor of that system being maintained, then you're participating in whiteness. You're participating in Euro-Christianity. If you're in favor of that system being dismantled, you're participating in something else. Have I got it right? How would you say it differently if I've got it wrong? But I think you said it correctly. I just want to nuance it a little bit more. So, so definitely those who benefit from white supremacy and mostly the people who are white, actual pigmentation and people who may be Christians embrace this either consciously or very unconsciously. And then you have some people who are of color who also embrace it because even though they are of color, by embracing it, they're placed on a pedestal and they receive certain privileges for being the spokesperson of white supremacy. And I can think of certain politicians who keep saying that there's no racism in America, even though they're black, they should know better. So you have that as well. But then you also have a group of people who have what we call false consciousness. That is that they actually believe that it is best to be white, even though they're not. And then they attempt to assimilate to this whiteness, even though they probably would never be accepted. So these are individuals who are advancing an ideology that is detrimental, not only to their own people, but to themselves as well. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Miguel de la Torre. He's Professor of Social Ethics and Latinx Studies at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver. He's published over 41 books, and we've had him on the show before to talk about his book, Decolonizing Christianity. Today we're talking about his recent book, Resisting Apartheid America, Living the Badass Gospel. As I'm hearing you lay out these terms for us, Euro-Christianity, false consciousness, whiteness that is more involved in accessing privileges than it is with necessarily pigmentation, I'm almost hearing an inversion of the Apostle Paul saying, in Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, there is neither male nor female, there is neither slave nor free. I'm hearing a kind of inversion of that here where in Euro-Christianity, you can be Muslim or Jewish and still support Euro-Christianity. In Euro-Christianity and the sort of white supremacy, you can be a person of darkly melanated skin and still be supporting Euro-Christianity and the project of white privilege. Am I hearing that correctly? Is bringing Paul in here too much of a stretch? What would you say to that? No, I think that's an excellent uh, comparison. I, and I think you're absolutely right. That's exactly what I'm trying to get at, that this becomes an ideology that we can enter into, believe in, regardless if we are specifically benefited or not. 
Because sometimes the worst thing that can happen is that our own minds, I'm talking about individuals of color, become so colonized that we begin to see ourselves and interpret ourselves through the eyes of those who benefit off of the labor of our bodies. Well, could you just quickly, since you've used the word for my listeners, when you use this word colonized, lay out for us what that means. Expand on us what, what happens when we're colonized in our minds. So the, the colonial venture that begins with the invasion of what we now call the Western Hemisphere, the idea was to Christianize and civilize the natives. In other words, they were so barbaric, so savage, that the attempt of Christians was to bring them to the good news of Jesus Christ and to civilize them along European paradigms. Now, if they did not embrace Christianity or if they preferred their own traditions, they were mostly massacred or genocide. Even if they wanted to change and assimilate, they were still massacred and genocide. So this is the colonial venture. There were those within those individuals who went ahead and actually began to believe that this European Christian way of being was superior to their own religious beliefs and their own way that society was constructed. And in doing that, they embraced the religion and the social norms of the people who were killing them and genociding them. And this is what I mean by, by becoming a colonized mind, that they began to see themselves as inferior, as savage, as primitive, because they were seeing themselves through the eyes of those who defined them in that manner. And for those of us who are of color, who have grown up in this country, who have gone through from elementary school through college, who have been part of, this, of society, Everything from television to movies to our textbooks have reinforced the fact that we are an inferior people. And we begin to believe that to the point that we begin to define ourselves and see ourselves that way. And this is what I mean by our colonized mind. How then do we begin to decolonize our mind? How do we learn to see ourselves with our own eyes? Now, if I'm hearing you correctly, the act of colonization is Europeans coming to a location using violence against a population. But if I'm hearing correctly, then to become colonized is almost to move that violence inside oneself where the batons no longer need to land on your skull. You're already telling yourself you're inferior or I'm telling myself I'm inferior. I don't belong. I don't deserve what these others have. Have I got it right or would you say it in a different way? No, absolutely. We learn to discipline ourselves. So you no longer need a baton to keep a person in line. They will keep themselves in line. And we've been talking so far about Euro-Christianity and how it is distinct from something else that we might call Christianity. And earlier in the conversation, you said this has nothing to do with doctrines and beliefs. It's an ideology. Okay, so if we're going to look at Euro-Christianity, would we consider it to be a kind of perversion of real Christianity, or is it a kind of idolatry that stands apart and against Christianity, or would you go so far to say that Euro-Christianity isn't actually a religion at all? How would you classify it? No, I would agree. It's not a religion at all. It is a political ideology whose purpose is to increase the power 
of a certain group of people. It has nothing to do with faith. And if I was to, to bring the voice of James Cone into the conversation, at one point, this is back in the 1960s, so this is not a new concept. In the 1960s, he said that any Christianity that has nothing to say about slavery or Jim and Jane Crow is satanic. So, so if I could just pick up where he left off, and I would then go on to say any Christianity that has nothing to say about brown bodies dying on our borders at a rate of four every three days, or has nothing to say about children being torn from their mothers and put into cages and, and, uh, at our borders, is as well satanic. So this Eurocentric Christianity, this Euro-Christianity, is a political, power-searching ideology. And if we're going to call it any type of spirituality, it would have to be a satanic spirituality. And we're moving towards our first break, but before we leave this part of the conversation, again, what I'm calling the table-setting part of our conversation, I want listeners to get one other piece of the puzzle of your book, Resisting Apartheid America, and that's the dedication page, where you dedicate the book to Senator Ted Cruz and to Marco Rubio. And I wonder if you can briefly explain why they are the, the targets of dedication here. Well, as I was, as we were saying up to now, our minds become so colonized that we begin to defend the very structures that are designed to oppress our people. You have Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, both like myself, Cubans, both claim their Latino-ness, and yet the laws that they advocate for, the laws that they pass have been detrimental to the Hispanic community. This is the example in dedicating the book. I'm hoping that if they were to read the book, they may see the light and repent of their ways and get saved. But if that doesn't happen, they become the example of who I am speaking to when I talk about this colonization of one's mind. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Miguel A. De La Torre. He is Professor of Social Ethics and Latinx Studies at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver. He's published over 41 books, including Burying White Privilege, Resurrecting a Badass Christianity, and Decolonizing Christianity, Becoming Badass Believers. His commentary has appeared in prominent media outlets, including CNN, Telemundo, NPR, Time Magazine, and many others, both domestic and international. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Resisting Apartheid America, Living the Badass Gospel. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Professor Miguel A. De La Torre. 
He's professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at Iliff School of Theology in Denver. He's published over 41 books, including Burying White Privilege, Resurrecting a Badass Christianity, and Decolonizing Christianity, Becoming Badass Believers. His commentary has appeared in numerous media outlets, both domestic and international. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Resisting Apartheid America, Living the Badass Gospel. Well, early on in your book, Resisting Apartheid America, you mentioned that this is part of a trilogy. Your first book, Burying White Privilege, was really aimed at those who benefit from white privilege and those who are living maybe zombie-like in this structure of support for their whiteness. And again, whiteness not as skin color, but whiteness as the benefiting from all of the privileges of the structures that are in place. And then you moved on from there to decolonizing Christianity, becoming badass believers, and you mentioned these are for the people who are not being benefited by that system to help to awaken them. And then you say that Resisting Apartheid America, this third book in the trilogy, is really meant to be the kind of prophetic expression of these ideas. And I wonder if you can help us understand what you mean by prophetic here. Let me begin by saying that in the last chapter, I mentioned an interaction that took place. I was giving a, I was on a panel and one of the, after I gave my talk, one of the colleagues on the panel basically told the audience, well, Miguel is what we call a prophet, which was highly offensive because I'm a scholar. I'm not a prophet. I can't foretell the future. I don't have tea leaves or Ouija board or anything like that. I am a scholar. But by dismissing me as a prophet, you could then dismiss everything I say because in their minds, it would therefore lack academic rigor. So in this book and in the other three books, I believe there was academic rigor. There is a tremendous degree of depth into these concepts. But what I'm doing in this book is while I refuse to be called a prophet, I do argue that our work can be prophetic. In other words, it doesn't take a PhD to look at what's going on right now and see which direction we seem to be heading towards. So what I'm trying to do is, is play the prophet, be prophetic, but at the same time, hoping that I am totally wrong. So one of the things that I'm hearing in that answer is when you were sitting on that panel and that person said, well, Miguel is playing the role of a prophet, am I hearing correctly that you interpreted that to be a dismissal of you as a kind of utopian, or, so, or you were looking for answers that would never be possible within the structure you had your head in the clouds. You weren't really thinking about practical things. As I say these, do they resonate or would you say it in a different way? They do resonate, but there's something I think even a little deeper than that. And that is within the academy, there's this division between those who believe they're doing pure scholarship. In other words, objective scholarship, as though any scholarship could be objective. I mean, basically all scholarship is subjective. But some people have enough power to make their subjectivity objective for everybody else. So if all scholarship is objective, by saying that what we do is objective and pure scholarship and what you do is social activism and prophetic diminishes the contributions that you are doing. Now, those who are mostly are engaged in scholarship design to have an impact within their communities are usually scholars of color. 
So it's a way of reinforcing the racism that exists within the academy. Also, as I'm hearing you discuss this moment when you were accused, and I'm scare quoting that, of being a prophet, I also heard an echo of the book of Amos. And for listeners that haven't turned to the book of Amos for a while, there's an encounter between this man Amos and a priest named Amaziah, where Amaziah has all of the benefits of being in the inner court of the king. And he's, a, he's if you will, a, a temple priest or a, a court priest, if you will. And at one point he says to Amaziah, well, just run along, prophet. We don't need your kind around here. You're from the wrong side of the tracks. I'm paraphrasing the Hebrew, of course. But, but that kind of dismissal then is met by Amos responding, listen, I'm not a prophet. I'm just here to tell you how the actual things are happening when you're doing all these things to defraud the poor. Now, what I'm hearing you saying is that you're trying to do here in Resisting Apartheid America a similar sort of thing. You're not trying to say, I'm going to predict the future and read the tea leaves. You're saying, look at what we are doing materially to the most vulnerable, and here's where that's going to lead if we don't stop the momentum now. Am I hearing that correctly, or would you say it in a different way? No, and quite frankly, if you want to continue with that analogy, Amos is crossing the border to speak to the king, and basically they're saying, well, we'll go back to where you come from. <laughs> you don't belong here. You really have no say here. Just go back to where you become, where you came from. And in a way, that's part of what goes into this dismissal as a prophet. So the prophetic voice that you're latching onto here is the voice that speaks from, and this is your phrase, from the margins of whiteness. And it is a voice that names something that whiteness refuses to name, something that Euro-Christianity refuses to name. And so let's begin to shape that out for our listeners. What are you and others who are speaking prophetically from the margins of whiteness naming that someone like me is being taught not to hear? Well, this idea of speaking from the margins, again, this is not something new. W.E. Du Bois was talking about this double consciousness back in the, over 100 years ago, where he says that, in his case, the, in, in the sort of Black folks, that Black people know what it means to be Black, but they also know what it means to be white because they have to survive in a white world. But white folks have absolutely no idea what it means to be Black, even though they do know what it means to be white. So in a way, those in the margins have what we could call a hermeneutical privilege. In other words, they have a better grasp of reality because not only must do they understand what it means to survive in a white world, in a white Eurocentric Christian world, but they also know what it means to survive in their own world and among their own people. So what is missing, to answer your question, is that most people with power, privilege, and profit do not know what it means for those living on the margins of society. And they're the ones that are suffering the most from the very policies that those who are in the center have voted for. So going back to that very first book on burying white privilege, when you have not just like 80% of evangelicals voting for Trump, but the vast majority of mainline Christians and the vast majority of white Catholics also voting for Trump, and the policy of that particular administration has been devastating to communities of color, they don't see that. But for those who live in those communities, we face it every day. And that's, so, so when we speak and we point these things out, which I try to do in the book, 
it's not so much being a prophet. It's just saying what it is, what's going on. And it may sound prophetic to those who are accustomed to their privilege, who did not even know this whole other world has existed on the underside of their history. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Miguel A. De La Torre. He's Professor of Social Ethics and Latinx Studies at the Isle of School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. Today we're talking about his recent book, Resisting Apartheid America, Living the Badass Gospel. I'm so glad a moment ago you named this idea of hermeneutical privilege and the ways in which those that have been pushed to the margins or who are commenting from the margins see not only their own reality, but also the reality of white privilege, because that allows us then to introduce the sort of flip side of that coin, which is a kind of commitment to ignorance. And there's a, there's a lot that you make of this, but help us to understand how structured ignorance helps to maintain and subtend both Euro-Christianity and these white privileges? Probably the best example I can give is this current move to ban books in, in libraries and in school. First of all, if you ever are advocating banning books, you're on the wrong side of history. <laughs> Let's begin with there. But secondly, the idea that people might read something and be challenged or changed so we, we need to go ahead and in the name of liberty and freedom, prevent them from reading it is highly problematic. The fact that right now many professors cannot engage with critical race theory and the conversation we're having right now, if we were to have it at a university where I'm the professor, I could get fired. And if I'm in Florida, I could get sued for $10,000 by every student who was offended. So the we are moving into an era, if we're not already in the era, in where we are legislating ignorance. We want people to be stupid. And the reason we want people to be stupid is because then they could easily be manipulated to vote out of fear. Because if I could tell them, you need to be afraid of people who write books about critical race theory or write books that, about the experiences of marginalized community, then I could get you to vote for me. So ignorance needs to reign so as to reinforce this apartheid system that, that if it's not already here, is definitely coming. And you just used a word there, this apartheid system, and it's there in the title of your book, but maybe some listeners who were born after the late 1980s, they may not be as familiar with this term. Let's just quickly define that. When you use this word apartheid, what does that mean? Well, if we go to the actual word itself, as used in South Africa, it means apart from. So apartheid means that you are apart from. And it was a system that was put into place to make sure that blacks were apart from whites. Now, this apartheid system has always existed in the United States. Go into any neighborhood <laughs> and you have white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods and Latino neighborhoods. And if a white neighborhood, according, I think, to the Association of Realtors, is ever more than 3% of color, the people begin selling their houses because the neighborhood is changing. So we've always lived in the apartheid system. We may have said that we desegregated the schools with Brown versus the Board of Education back in the 50s, but our school system is more desegregated now than it was back in the 1960s. So this apartheid, the system of being separate, has been 
with us since the foundation of this republic. So when I'm saying resisting the apartheid system, it's not just resisting the system that is becoming strong and is coming, but it's also resisting the system we have now as well. I want to circle back to something that you said in an earlier answer just a moment ago. You were saying as an illustration that if you and I were to have this conversation at a school there in Colorado or in Florida, there's the possibility that we might get sued. And I just want to make sure that listeners are hearing this, that when we're talking about these structures of white privilege and white supremacy, we're not just talking about people with torches or fringe elements. We're talking about people who use the very structures of law to maintain this ignorance, to maintain these structures of privilege and benefit for themselves. So help us to see how this ties together. I'm thinking of this in sort of a Romans 13 sense almost, where, and for listeners who haven't seen that chapter of Romans lately, that's the place where Paul says, submit to the legal authorities. And there's a, So help us understand how Euro-Christianity uses the law, not just violence, but the law to keep people in line. Yeah, I always find Romans 13 to be very funny because when you have people like, say, Trump be elected, all these Christians were always sowing Roman 13 at me. But then when you have Obama or you have Biden as president, no one is saying Roman 13. Now, quite the contrary. It's let's go ahead and storm the Capitol and, and not obey the authority of government. So whatever Roman 13 said, either Paul misunderstood what was going on or he got it wrong. Because obviously, we cannot always obey government. To do so would mean that we would have been supporting the Nazis when they were exterminating the Jews. We should not obey. And I, and I would have a hard time saying God put the Nazis in power to have good governments. I would think that's a tremendous stretch from what that passage meant. So while I would agree that we should obey and follow the government, the government has its responsibility to make sure that it doesn't abuse the people. And right now it's abusing the vast majority of marginalized people have been abusing it since the foundation of this government. Hence, you have a Martin Luther King doing this civil disobedience, literally breaking bad laws. And then you have some people on the southern border who are doing civil initiative. And that is, we are saying that the government's the ones breaking their own laws, and we are holding them responsible to their rhetoric. So this is said at certain points not as explicitly as I'm about to say it in your book, Resisting Apartheid America, but I'm going to try this and let's see if I've got it right. So when the government is oppressing minorities, marginalized, that's authoritarianism, that's autocratic. One of the things that we have in place for governments to be more responsive and more caring for the extraordinary variety of citizens, especially the marginalized, would be robust democratic structures. And what you're doing through the entire middle part of resisting apartheid America is you're showing us again and again how those robust democratic structures are being dismantled so that white privilege and Euro-Christianity can be maintained even against the cries of the poor and the cries of the suffering. When I say it that clearly, have I understood your analysis correctly, or, and are you calling for a more robust dedication to democratic structures, or are you looking for something else, maybe something more revolutionary? Well, no, democracy is great. I, I'm more in favor of democracy, even though it is a modernist invention. I still believe that the, the majority, many voices in the conversation is good. 
But that assumes those voices need to be educated. It assumes those voices need to know the issues. And what we're seeing is a demagogy going on in where we are forcing ignorance upon people to where even though all the science says that the vaccine and masks work, and, and of course, like science, it's a hypothesis, hypothesis. You test it. Sometimes it's wrong. So you correct it. Sometimes it's right. And you move on. We instead wanted to believe that by injecting Clorox and we would cure the coronavirus. So, so we were choosing ignorance over and against science. Not that science is always right. But again, science is a process that moves us closer and closer to something that may be healthy. So by all means, I'm not saying we should eliminate democracy. I say we should actually establish it for once in this country. And up to now, we've never had a democracy. The closest that we came may have been when large communities of color went registered to vote and voted Obama in as president. And once that occurs, you see this white lash uh, to make the White House white again by electing probably the most racist president since Woodrow Wilson. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Miguel A. De La Torre. He's professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver. He's published over 41 books, including Burying White Privilege, Resurrecting a Badass Christianity, and Decolonizing Christianity, Becoming Badass Believers. Longtime listeners will recall that we discussed decolonizing Christianity in an earlier broadcast. His commentary has appeared in prominent media outlets including CNN, Telemundo, NPR, Time Magazine, and many others, both domestic and international. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today to Professor Miguel A. De La Torre. He's Professor of Social Ethics and Latinx Studies at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. He's published over 41 books, including Decolonizing Christianity, Becoming Badass Believers, which we have discussed on the show before in a previous episode. His commentary has appeared in prominent media outlets, including CNN, Telemundo, NPR, Time Magazine, and many others, both domestic and international. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Resisting Apartheid America, Living the Badass Gospel. Well, through most of our conversation, we've been talking about Euro-Christianity, this kind of ideological Christianity that really supports the structures of white privilege and white supremacy in the American project. But now I'd like to invite you to begin to share with my listeners your vision for a different kind of Christianity, what you call a badass Christianity or the badass gospel. Can you begin to line out the structures of that for us? When I use the term badass Christianity, what I, it's really a call to action a call to action for those who have been marginalized. It becomes a way of, as we said earlier, the, the decolonizing of one's mind and of one's faith. So to be a badass Christian means, in a very real sense, taking the message of the gospel seriously, feed the hungry, you give water to the thirsty, clothe the naked, welcome the alien, 
make sure that the sick has health care. Make sure that the person in prison, humanity is not stolen from them. In other words, we always say, well, I don't know what to do. And I find that problematic because the gospel makes it very clear what to do to bring good news to the poor. So a badass Christianity is actually doing what the gospel in its very basic way says we should be doing. But there's another aspect to this, and that is for those who are part of the dominant culture, who are privileging from these structures of Eurocentric Christianity, their salvation, their liberation occurs when they learn to worship the Christ from the margins, the Christ of the oppressed. So for the individual who is homophobic, their salvation comes when they start worshiping the queer Jesus. For the racist, their salvation comes when they start worshiping the black Jesus. For the one crying, build that war, their salvation comes when they start worshiping the undocumented Jesus. So to become badass for those who are privileged means crucifying that privilege, that power, and that profit, which very few are willing to do. One of the things also that you say in your book, Resisting Apartheid America, and I want to make sure that I have this right, is that if someone heeds the call to return to this kind of Christianity, to this badass gospel, the practice of it might not look like Christianity, or it might not be named Christian. They may not find themselves a place in the institutional church. And what I heard you saying was, that's okay. If you've been harmed by this, and you can't, you can't ally yourself with it, that's okay, as long as you are still getting the practice of identifying with the marginalized and working for salvation by, by crucifying whatever it is that oppressed that marginalized person. Did I understand that correctly, or would you say that in a different way? No. I'll give, I'll give an example. One of my dear colleagues, Ching Tinka, who is an Osage, from the Osage people, he has written that when it comes to Christianity, he needs to say no to Jesus in order for him to be saved. And after you understand the, what Christian has done to his people, both historically and currently, I cannot blame him for wanting to, nothing to do with Christianity. Now, I don't want to use Reiner's, well, he's some kind of anonymous Christian. I'm not going to go there. I think that's very paternalistic. But what I want to say is, I'm sure that the God of justice would judge justly. And for my colleagues who have rejected Christianity because of what Christianity has done for centuries, I cannot blame them at all. I do not hold them accountable. I hold Christians accountable, specifically the colonizing Christians. And there's such a powerful example of this in your book, Resisting Apartheid America, where you say holding the victims of Christianity or holding the victims of this racialized violence accountable and saying that they somehow have to make it right and they have to reconcile would be like saying to a victim of domestic abuse, listen, you need to say this in the nicest possible way to your abuser or your abuser's going to feel hurt and we can't have that. I, I really appreciated that moment in your book, Resisting Apartheid America, because it really made concrete for me the kind of dynamic that we're talking about and how people like me who have benefited from this kind of Euro-Christianity and the comfort that I have inherited has come at the expense of others, and it's really a, that was really a bracing moment for me to shut my mouth and listen 
and to really become much more available to people that I have comfortably excluded from my Christianity. I just, so I want to say, first of all, thank you for that kind of moment. But I also want to invite you then to, to take us further because you say, listen, acknowledging the violence that Christians have done, there are a number of reactions that would be rational. One reaction would be to hate the Christians. Another reaction would be to do violence against Christians. And you say, I don't want to advocate for either of those. I want to call you instead to love. But listeners who've been with us this far probably know that if we just say love and we leave it at that, it's a love that's going to be folded in to the benefit of someone like me. Help us to understand in that moment when you're calling not for violence or for hate or for retribution, but for love, what you mean by that. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is that I need to learn not to hate, but rather to pity. In other words, the reason, and I use myself as an example, I was a sexist. Growing up, I learned how to be a misogynist, and I did it very well. I Eventually, I realized that this was a structure of oppression that I was complicit with, and I have been working on myself to no longer be a sexist. But the thing is, the best that I could achieve is becoming a recovering sexist, because at any moment, I could fall off the wagon. And if I fall off the wagon, no one's going to notice and I could even benefit from it. Or even though I may wear the funny pink hat and march with the sisters for equal pay, the structures are designed to privilege me purely because I'm male, regardless of the rhetoric that I say. So the issue with me was not so much that I should be hated because I was a sexist, but I should be pitied because this is the way my family, my society, and my church taught me to be. And in the same way that I'm asking for pity for my own complicity with oppression, and I I use sexism, I could also use colorism. I am a light-skinned Latino. I could use homophobia as well. I could use all the same things that I'm saying the white Eurocentric Christianity is guilty of. So was I. So I'm a strong believer that individuals, that the individuals could be redeemed. Individuals can change. And that's what I'm trying to do with these books. But when I say pity, that then allows me to maybe be able to work with someone who does want to change. Now, by the same token, I, and I think I said this in the second book, I mentioned something about I'm no longer interested of talking, talking the truth to power. Because to a great extent, power already knows this. They just choose not to embrace it because it's going to, it's going to threaten the unearned power, privilege, or profits. So instead, I'm trying to speak power to the powerless. So that's where my, my, my emphasis is on. And if somebody who reads my books gets to hear me talking to the powerless, and maybe that might be a way of conviction of beginning to change. So I want to make sure that I've heard this correctly, and I really like that move that you made at the end where you talked about no longer speaking truth to power, but rather speaking power to the powerless. I come from a Roman Catholic background, so I pay attention to Pope Francis. And in 2015, Pope Francis spoke to the United Nations and he said, listen, 
all of us who have access to resources, here's what our job is. Our job is to help the poor become dignified agents of their own destiny. And he keeps talking about helping to support people in becoming protagonists in their own story. When you are talking about speaking power to the powerless and not uh, participating in these structures of oppression like sexism and colorism that you inherited, I heard echoes of trying to support the powerless in becoming the protagonists of their own story, the dignified agents of their own destiny. But that's my move. When I make that move, does that feel legitimate to you? Or would you push this in a different direction with a different momentum? No, I think that's a good move. And to make that move then means becoming standing in solidarity with the oppressed. And standing in solidarity does not mean leading them. It does not mean telling them what they need to do to become like me. It means just standing with them and also facing the terrors and the hardships that they're going to face. So it really becomes a commitment to walk with them. Thinking about walking with Jesus as he carried his cross, Jesus, walking with Jesus in, the, in Jesus' own suffering. And that's what this solidarity means, to come beside someone and walk with them. So let me try and now take this a little farther. Since we've built the bridge to this point, I want to try this out and see how it lands with you. So if I'm committed to helping the poor or the powerless gain power on their terms, not mine, and if I'm committed to walking with them in solidarity, which means even exposing myself to their suffering, then that helps me understand, I think, what you mean by this word love. Because so often, I, and I see this in domestic relationships, I see this a lot with Christian pastors, where they say to their flock or they say to whoever, listen, I'm going to tell you the hard truth that makes you feel terrible about yourself, gay person or person of color or whatever. I'm going to tell you the hard truth because you need to know the truth of Jesus, and that's me loving you. But what I'm hearing you saying instead is that if the person that we're putting this activity on looks at us and says, no, I don't feel loved by that, then we're not actually loving them. It doesn't matter what the truth, quote-unquote, is. It doesn't matter what our intention, quote-unquote, is. What matters instead is how this person is receiving the action that we're doing. And if they look at us and they say, I don't feel safe because of what you're doing, then we're not loving them. Now, again, these are all my words, but as I start to put these pieces together, have I got it or would you put it in a different direction? No, I think you you definitely got it. I think you're putting the pieces together correctly because at the end of the day, Love is not a feeling. Love is an action. Love is something you do. You do love. You don't think love. You don't believe in love. You don't give love. It's something you actually do. And you do it by doing justice. No greater love than to, than to engage in justice. What I like about this, and thank you for allowing me to do this in real time, Because you say at the outset of the book, listen, the kind of Christianity that has prevailed in America, this Euro-Christianity, it can't actually be Christianity because it doesn't take love seriously. And if where we just got to is love means actually listening to the less powerful person in the equation and really adjusting your behavior until they say, I feel safe and I feel like I'm flourishing here, then we can look at the entire structure and say, it's impossible for white privilege to even be a loving structure 
it can only ever be a violent structure. And this brings us to a point that you say at several stages in all three of these books, but you say it very clearly towards the end of Resisting Apartheid America, it's possible that the Christianity in America cannot be redeemed. It needs to be abandoned and something else needs to come. And so I know that you're not wanting to be a prophet here, but I'm asking you to play the prophetic role. What comes next? Yeah, well, when I say that this Eurocentric Christianity cannot be redeemed is that there was so much blood on its hands for so many centuries, and it is rooted in such a, a sustaining of white supremacy that you cannot redeem it. You cannot redeem something that is so evil and so satanic and so murderous. So, so it's not so much what comes next, but it really becomes what do we do now? Now that we know this, what do we do? And I think I mentioned this a little earlier. If we say, what's that horrific saying? I love this. I love the sinner, but hate the sin. Yeah. Okay. If I really love the sinner, then I need to worship the God of the sinner. In other words, and I mentioned it, if I want to really stand in solidarity with those who are oppressed, and this, and I'll use the example of queer people. If they're being oppressed, then I need to learn to worship the queer God. And in doing that, I would learn what love is. And I would learn what this relationship that I have with the people that I have historically oppressed should be. And that begins, I think, not only my personal liberation, but even the salvation of the church itself. So this, I'm really just finding this conversation to be electrifying. And I found it similar, your book as well, because the way that you're putting these pieces together, it really allows for a kind of new possibility. But what I love about this especially is you keep reminding me, Dalt, this is not a new possibility. This is an old possibility. This goes back to James Cone. This goes back to Martin Luther King Jr. This goes back even to Jesus himself in terms of the possibility here but we have found again and again that the church has refused to embrace the possibility of the kind of love that we're talking about. And it's instead chosen comfort, it's chosen empire, it's chosen colonialism. So how do we help to make sure that is not the choice that gets made again? And here's where I am somewhat hopeless. <laughs> and I wrote a book called Embracing Hopelessness, because I really believe that, unfortunately, once we've tasted power and privilege and profit, we're not going to willingly give it up. You know, we'll learn the rhetoric. We'll learn to mask it. But we're not going to want to give that up. There's something about power, the privilege. Let's put this, let me put it in, in stark terms. Let's look at our, at our planet for a moment. We think that wouldn't it be great if every human being gets to live and eat the way Americans do. Let's bring everybody up to our level. Well, to do that, you need four planets because you need that many resources to get everyone to the level that people in the United States are accustomed to. So that mathematically is impossible. And the reason we have the most powerful army in the world is because the vast majority of the world's resources, something like 40%, are going to just 6% of the world's population. So if we truly want justice, 
It means you and I can no longer have the standard of living that we have now. It definitely means that the 1% cannot have the standard of living that they have now. So how many people want to raise their hand in undoing the privilege that this power has given them? And I'll bet you dollars to donuts, very few hands went up. And that's why I'm hopeless. Well, Professor Miguel De La Torre, every time that you come on the program, even when we end on a note such as you just did, I come away from the conversation having learned so much, and I feel more possibility within my own walk trying to be a Christian because of the work that you're doing. So I want to say on behalf of myself as a grateful reader, also on behalf of my listeners, thank you for the time that you took to write these three books, Burying White Privilege, Decolonizing Christianity, and now Resisting Apartheid America. But thank you especially for taking the time again to talk about it with us here on the program. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our time together. We've been speaking today with Professor Miguel A. De La Torre. He's Professor of Social Ethics and Latinx Studies at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver. He's published over 41 books, and today we've been talking about his recent book, Resisting Apartheid America, Living the Badass Gospel. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.